0: Please take your Bibles and tend with me to Romans, a very, very familiar text of Scripture. And as Pastor John MacArthur was preaching on Assurance this morning, I was tempted to run home and grab another set of manuscripts, but I remembered the words of Paul to the church in Philippi in Philippians 3. He says, I do not mind writing the same things to you <laughs> because they are a safeguard for you. And so I trust that. As we look at this text of Scripture, it will provide that safety net. Romans chapter 8, the title for our message is Our Glorious Salvation. Our Glorious Salvation. I'm going to be reading the first four verses. Follow along with me. Romans 8, 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is heaven's word to us this morning. May it perform its work in you and in me. Every religion has one thing in common. All religions promise salvation. But as you know, man-made religion may promise salvation, but none of them can guarantee salvation. In fact, the apostle Paul offers a critique against the Judaizers which I think is true of all false religions. Paul says in Romans 10:3 that the Judaizers, not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So that's the issue with false religions. They are seeking to establish their own righteousness. But works-based righteousness can never produce assurance because how do you know how much is enough? How do you know that what you have done is 99.99% of the target? It's impossible to know. Mahatma Gandhi, a man renowned for nonviolence and for leading a tranquil life, was a devout Hindu. He loved Hinduism, but he confessed its utter failure to comfort him in the face of death. Listen to what he says. Moments leading to his death. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the slew of despond. All about me is darkness. I am praying for light. 50 years of following a religion, no assurance. That's very different from how the Apostle Paul faced death very different from how the apostle Paul fell towards the end of his life right writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 he says in future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me but to all who loved his appearance incredible confidence Right, in Philippians 1, he tells us he had said earlier to the church in Philippi, earlier in his life, for to me, to live, Christ, to die, gain incredible confidence and boldness and assurance. Now, the question I must ask is, is that kind of boldness, that kind of assurance, is that reserved just for super apostles? No, it's not. The testimony of Scripture is every believer can and should enjoy this assurance. So how is it that there are many Christians who walk around with with heads hanging low, with no assurance? They, like Mahatma Gandhi, who was not a Christian, find themselves in the slew of desponds. That is the opposite of what God desires for His children— God wants His children to be assured of their sonship. He wants your assurance to blossom like the spring day. It is not virtuous for you to lack assurance. It is not humility to lack assurance. It is unbelief. Now, I must qualify this. There are times when a believer must lack assurance. When a believer is in unrepentant sin, He ought to be as uncomfortable in that situation as a pig would be in clean water. Must be very uncomfortable. But when we confess our sins, when we forsake our folly, when we fully commit our way to the Lord and we cling to Him, however imperfectly, we ought not to doubt that one day we will stand on the shores of heaven and be received by our Lord into glory. But you might wonder what Romans 8 has to do with assurance. So let me demonstrate to you how before we get into our text. The Apostle Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 19 times in Romans 8. That's the highest concentration of references to the Spirit in just one chapter in the New Testament. And he says in Romans 8.14 that the Spirit assures us that we are sons of God. And two verses later in Romans 8.16, he says the Spirit assures us that we are children of God. That's the Spirit's role in our lives, assurance. But not only the immediate context, the broader structure supports this. Romans 1.1-15, 1, 1 Paul gives us some introductory remarks. 1, 16 and 17, he introduces the theme of the letter, the gospel of salvation in which there is righteousness. And 1, 18 all the way through to three twenty, the Apostle Paul speaks of our need for this gospel, our need for salvation. And chapter 3, verses 21, all the way to chapter 4, he speaks of the provision of righteousness in the gospel through faith in Christ. And chapter 5, all the way through chapter 8, he speaks of the application of this gospel, which produces assurance. So the section that we're in, chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8, is all about the believer being assured. In fact, he began chapter 5, verse 1, right? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And he ends chapter 8, Nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not life, not death, not angels, not principalities, not things present, nor things to come, not powers, not height, not depth, nor any other created thing. That's the catch-all phrase. Shall ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So he begins chapter 5 with, We have peace with God. And he ends chapter 8 with, We are loved by God eternally. There could be nothing more assurance-staring than those truths. So the question then is, which we will seek to answer, how do you grow in your assurance of salvation? How do you grow? In Romans 8, 1 through 4, there are four declarations, four declarations that should help you grow in assurance of salvation. Verse 1, you cannot be condemned. That's the first one. Verse 2, you were released from sin. Verse 3, your sins were condemned in Christ. That's the third one. And the fourth and final one this morning will be your new life fulfills the law of God. And we will repeat those as we go through our text. The first declaration, you cannot be condemned. Look at what Paul says, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Amazing. No condemnation. It would have been enough for Paul to simply say, therefore. That would have communicated the message. But for him to say, therefore now, which he says two verses later, two words later, is an emphatic declaration that what he has just said has enormous present implications. It's Paul's way of saying, because of this, this. And he asked the question in seven. 24, right? Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, the redemption of the body is future, as he will explain even later on in chapter 8. But the principle of that salvation, the reality of that salvation, though in seed form, is a present reality and can be enjoyed by the believer. That's why he begins now. He said in chapter 7, verse 6, we have been released from the law to serve in the newness of the Spirit. We no longer live under the old economy of the law, which Paul calls in 2 Corinthians, that is the ministry of death. But now in this era, we live under the new economy of life and peace and salvation." And in chapter 3, verse 21, he said, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, which should remind us of one seventeen. In the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God, freely given. And I think it's important to note that in chapter 8, verse 1, the very first word in the original is No which could literally be translated, not one. So by fronting that negation, Paul emphatically declares, no condemnation, none whatsoever, nothing of the sort, absolutely never. And many Greek words are translated as condemnation in the New Testament. But the word that Paul uses here, only occurs three times, and by the Apostle Paul once in eight one and twice in Romans 5. And it's a word that not only speaks of the declaration of a verdict, but of the execution of that verdict. So to bring out the meaning, we might translate verse 1 as, there is therefore now no damnation. There is therefore now no punishment. There is therefore now no execution. And you remember the notorious prisoner, Barabbas, who had been held in prison during the trial of Jesus. The court officials had declared Barabbas to be guilty, right? But what awaited Barabbas was crucifixion on a Roman cross. The word used here does not speak of Barabbas' imprisonment. It speaks of Barabbas suffering for his crimes on a Roman cross. But we can imagine Barabbas probably must have heard the The chanting, the memory, and the discussions, and the rioting from his prison cell. But imagine with me, a prison guard goes to Barabbas as he's hearing all of these noises, and he calls him out. Barabbas, come out. And Barabbas leads his way out. What did Barabbas expect? He expected that he would soon meet his fate. He would soon suffer execution on a Roman cross, for his criminal activity. He was an insurrectionist. But Barabbas heard from the crowd that day, and not only the crowd, but Pontius Pilate, an earthly ruler, Barabbas, no cross. Barabbas, no punishment. Barabbas, no crucifixion. Barabbas, no damnation for you. He will be damned for you. Crucify him. Crucify him, crucify him, they cried out. Every believer in Jesus Christ, the moment they place their faith in him, they hear, not from an earthly ruler, but from a heavenly court official. No judgment. No punishment. No damnation. No damnation now, and no damnation then, the reality of our salvation is easy. You remember those written by Charles Wesley, apparently as a year-old Christian, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. And because of the reality, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown, through Christ, my own. What a triumphant song for the believer. And this good news comes to us on the heels of chapter 7. What's going on in chapter 7? It's a great sin struggle chapter. A wretched man that I am, you remember Paul concluded. Even when we struggle with sin, and we do, and may even fall into temptation, and we sometimes do, Paul says we are freed from condemnation and judgment. Look at the rest of verse 1. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And that statement is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive because anyone can be in Christ Jesus, right? Whether rich or poor, male or female, educated, uneducated, anyone can be in Christ Jesus. But it is exclusive because only those who are in Christ Jesus Are preserved from judgment. Outside of Christ, there is judgment. Outside of Christ, there is punishment. Outside of Christ, there is eternal hellfire. Oh, friend, if you are an unbeliever here today, you stand in a dangerous position. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not even see life. The wrath of God, the judgment of God, the punishment of God remains on him. Believe. This is Paul's favorite description for the believer. The believer is one who is in Christ. We cannot be condemned because, for the Father to condemn His own Son would be for to condemn us would be for the Father to condemn His Son. Again, that's impossible, right? Because we are in Him. We are one with Him. Right? Even our own, in our own society, we would call that double jeopardy. You don't try the same individual for the same crime twice. The son bore in his body, on the tree, our transgressions. to us near to God. Our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins can never, ever be thrown on our faces. No condemnation. This is a judicial rendition, and it is as true now as, you, as it will be the second we breathe our last. Now, does this mean that we can't have hardships in this life? No condemnation, as no discipline. The father loves his children, and sometimes, He brings about discipline in our lives to produce the fruit of righteousness and to wean us of our love for this present world. Also, does this mean that you can sin all you want because you can never be condemned for your sin? That very thought means you don't understand what Paul is saying here. Right? Chapter 6, he asked, Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. Banish that thought. In fact, verse 4, as I read to you earlier, Paul says, our new life fulfills the law of God. So for you to prefer sin would be to do contrary to the very purpose for which you've been redeemed. You might ask, how do I get in Christ, if that's a safe position? The Scripture is very clear. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Relinquish. Reliance on self. Trust wholly and fully and completely. Rest your soul on Jesus. Turn from self-confidence. There's only one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He's the only one. Your works cannot be a mediator good enough. Nothing can be immediate to good enough only the lord jesus christ the declaration that should help you grow in your assurance of salvation is that you cannot be condemned because you are in christ you might ask how do i know that i am in christ and that's a good question and it leads us to the second declaration that should help you grow in your assurance of salvation you were released from sin you were released from sin. In verse 2, Paul is saying, you have every reason to be assured of your future salvation because judgment is reserved for sin. But you have been released from that judgment, which is what attracts damnation. You have been rescued. You've been set free. Look at it with me. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free of sin and death. And that very first word there in Verse 2, 4, you could translate that as because, and you could use because in at least two ways. You could say, I'm very tired because I did not sleep, which gives us the ground or the the basis of why you are tired. Or you could say, I'm very tired because I fell asleep while that preacher with a funny accent was preaching. (laughs) Now, I don't think by that you mean that my funny accent was so troubling to you that it literally just put you to sleep. I think what you're saying is you came in already tired, and that's why you couldn't stay awake. So that's the evidence, and that's exactly what Paul is saying here. (laughs) Paul is saying, it's not saying here, that the ground or the basis of your no-condemnation status is your freedom from sin. That cannot be the ground, because we still fall back into sin right, and we would easily bring ourselves back into that condemnation status if that were the case. What Paul is saying here is we will not be condemned, verse 1, because we have the evidence of not belonging to the condemned group, verse 2. We have been released from sin, and sin is what leads to death. And he mentions two words there, this twice, the law. Do you see that in verse 2? And that reference to the law in verse 2 is figurative, speaking of a, of a governing principle, a rule, a power, a binding authority. And we know that because Paul uses the same phrase in chapter 7, 23 and 7, 25, speaking of sins, rule and power. So what Paul is saying when he says the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the death of the earth principle, the rule, the power, the binding authority of the Spirit has set you free from the rule, the power, the binding authority of sin, which leads to death. Sin no longer dominates us. Sin no longer reigns over us. Which is Again, Charles, in that beautiful, that beautiful hymn, recounts his own release from sin, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. That's the testimony of your conversion. When the spirit released us from sin, he literally unlocked the shackles of sin. So we had the freedom to follow. And so powerful is the Spirit of God that Paul tells us in Romans 1.4 that he raised Jesus from the dead with, with power. In fact, don't miss that Paul calls in, there in verse 2 the Spirit of life, the Spirit who gives life. He gave us life by releasing us from sin, which is the cause of death. But also notice the juxtaposition of sin and of death. That should remind us that death follows sin as surely as day follows night. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So, friend, don't fantasize with sin and expect any outcome other than death. As much as there's an assurance of salvation for the believer, there's equally an assurance of death for the one who continues in sin. Flirting with sin is flirting with death. But if, if you have uh, the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life and sin no longer reigns over you, however imperfect you may be, you have no reason your Savior's life. No reason. I've been stopped by the pope a few times and I remember one time, particularly, I was driving in a residential community. I was going at a relatively slow pace, or the car in front of me was going at a slow pace, and I thought to overtake, and it had no sign whatsoever of being a police vehicle. So I, <laughs> so I, so I overtook it. It must have been going at 15 miles an hour. I overtook, and immediately the siren went off, and I went, uh-oh. <laughs> so I, uh, I pulled over, I parked, and... Uh, and they came out of that vehicle, came three cops, heavily armed. And you can imagine how terrified I was. I thought, what did I do wrong? But there was one thing going for me, a clear conscience. The testimony of my conscience was going for me. And so as they came, they searched the boot of my car, as you call it here, my trunk. Um, <laughs> they took my ID card and they gave it back to me. It seems like they were looking for someone else. So... There was no evidence of me being a violator, and no evidence of violation means no, no persecution. As believers, because of the Spirit's work, we have the evidence that we are no longer violating the law of God as a settled identity of our lives. God, the judge, cannot condemn those released from sin. There's one phrase that we've intentionally skipped over as we worked our way through verse 2, and it is this, in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Look at that. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In fact, I believe the ESV does a better, a better job ordering the, uh, the wording there that communicates the meaning. The ESV says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Do you catch the difference? In other words, Paul is not talking about the Spirit being in Christ, but of the freedom found in Christ. He is emphasizing that the Spirit does not procure our freedom outside of the salvation reality purchased by Christ. In other words, the Spirit Does not and never works independent of Christ's crosswork. So the only way you can be released from your sin is to embrace the Christ who died for that sin. And that leads us to the third declaration your sins were condemned in Christ. Now follow Paul's logic here. He's saying, Believer, you cannot be condemned because you are in Christ. Verse 1. Moreover, you have been released from your sins, which are a cause of condemnation, verse 2. But God cannot lack like His justice. So the sins from which you have been released, verse 2, were in fact condemned in Christ, verse 3. This is triple proof that we ought not to doubt our final salvation. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do. The law could not do what the Spirit did in verse 2. That great inability is an agent of our freedom and liberation. And the law did not come to tame sin, right? The law came to, to aggravate sin. The only appropriate response in the face of the law is, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh. The inability of the law is not inherent in the law, but it is because of the weakness of those subject to the law. In fact, we could translate that as weak as it was because of the flesh. We are the problem, not the law. Because he said in chapter 7, good, holy, and righteous. Nothing wrong with the law. But he says in chapter 5 that we, are, we were helpless. We were weak. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's us. Keep verse three. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The summary of that is God condemned sin in the flesh. And that's referring to the flesh of Jesus. God damned sin. God executed sin. God punished sin. God did away with sin. And the word condemned there should remind us of verse 1. right? There's no condemnation for us because they're for for the Son of God. He was forsaken so that we might be embraced. God took the initiative. By sending his own son. And of course, that tells us that the Son existed before he was sent. Right? And he shares the same essence with his father. He says he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice he did not come in the likeness of flesh, because that would mean that Christ merely appeared as a man, but was not truly a man. Right? Moreover, he did not come in. In sinful flesh, because that would mean that Christ was a sinner, which would disqualify him from being our substitute. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Apostle Paul is a master theologian. The precision with which he says that is profound. In other words, Christ was truly man and fully man, Christ's flesh and your And my flesh and your flesh was exactly the same, except he had no sin. He was holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners. And this combination of his divinity and his humanity was necessary for our salvation. He had to be God because only God could bear the wrath of Almighty God for myriads and myriads of sinners for all the sins they would commit and suffer for a mere three hours and yet satisfy the wrath of God eternally so that not a single flaming wrath of Almighty God will ever befall anyone who has ever trusted in Christ. But he had to be man. Because man sinned, right? And the soul that sins shall die. So he died, our perfect substitute for our sins. And notice the phrase there, towards the end that we also skipped. And as an offering for sin. That's an Old Testament reference, meaning God offered him as a guilt offering. The prophet Isaiah tells us, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities the chastisement for our well-being fell on him by his scourging we are healed it pleased God to crush him putting him to grief if he would offer his life as a guilt offering then he will see his offspring oh praise the Lord Jesus for all that he has done for us this is the good news of the gospel You don't have to suffer for your sins. Christ died bearing the weight of our sins. Every sin ever committed by anyone who would ever believe on him, those sins were covered by his penalty. Another hymn writer captures the story of Golgotha. Well, turn your eyes to the hillside. Where justice and mercy embraced, there, there, the Son of God was slain for us, and our measureless debt was erased. And he erased it in three hours, three hours, but suffered the eternal wrath of Almighty God. Amazing grace. And the point of Paul bringing this up is, believer, you have every reason to be assured of your salvation, because Christ suffered to purchase it for you, is enough and will be enough. The Father did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And one of those things is assurance. The Father graciously, abundantly, right? The Scripture testifies He gives His Spirit without measure. The adulteress, the Samaritan woman, I came so that out of your belly there could be rivers flowing. The Father wants us to have full joy, full assurance. Now, the dramatic Exodus event was a great display of God's power and redemption. Right? Moses told the people, as instructed by God, paint the doorposts with blood. Roast that lamb, eat it, and go to bed. Don't worry about it. I'm going to go. I'm going to destroy all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. But you don't worry. Stay asleep. Now imagine if there was one Jewish family that just had an inordinate amount of fear about this event. So they do everything right. They paste the doorpost. They paint the doorpost with blood. They roast the lamb. They eat it. But instead of going to bed, they stay awake, just terrified. Perhaps the angel might come in. And let's say the angel sees the blood on the doorpost, but he decides to go and check out their faith, that their faith wasn't mixed with fear. And as immediately as the angel of death walks in, they all run a million directions. Fear, terrors, cries of panic. Do you think the angel of God would destroy them because they had faith that was mixed with fear? No, he will not. They murdered the Thames, to avoid judgment, right? They had the doors painted with blood, and they roasted it. And so Paul says here, Christ's blood has atoned for us, and it is our sufficient merit and plea. And however weak our faith, like that of that terrified Jewish home that met the terms but were still afraid, however weak our faith, we can be assured that God will not treat the sacrifice of His Son with contempt. He will not. It's not dependent on the strength of our faith. It's dependent on the quality of the sacrifice offered, right? We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Christ's sacrifice is worthy, and we will forever sing in heaven, worthy is the Lamb. were slain. So how should you deal with your sin, believer? Do you wallow in self-pity and guilt until you feel like you have felt bad enough to relieve your conscience? Do you conceal your sin and try harder the next temptation round? Both of those are unbiblical. Don't try to atone for your sins with feelings of guilt. Because that's an offense sin. And don't hide your sin, because that is the very reason that he came. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Right? First John 1 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and the blood of his son cleanses us. From all unrighteousness. So, no, we don't hide our sins. We confess our sins with brokenness. How could I carry on with this when it did so much to the Son of God? It hung him on that cross. But also, I don't atone for it because the sacrifice is enough. I rest in that and I go on slain the remaining sin in my life by the power of the Spirit so we could not do it, so we don't go to Mount Sinai, but the Son of God did it. So we go to Mount Golgotha every time. We never graduate from going to the Mount of Crucifixion to see the Lamb of God yet again. Who not only died for that sin, but rose victorious over it. In fact, Paul tells us, right, in 2 Timothy 1, that Christ literally abolished death and He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You want life? You don't want to fear death? Go to Christ. What's the purpose for Christ's cross work? Look at verse 4, the fourth declaration. Your new life fulfills the law of God. Read it with me. Saw so that, that introduces the purpose statement. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What is the requirement of the law? It is the righteousness demanded by the law. And the Old Testament uses the term requirement often to refer to a just or a right requirement. And the LSB is because that's exactly how it translates that, the righteous requirement. So how do we fulfill this righteous requirement of the law? First, I think it's important to notice that that's in a passive form. It is fulfilled in us, not us fulfilling it. And theologians are divided on how exactly to interpret that. Some say it's Christ's forensic righteousness, imputed to us. That forensic righteousness and our own obedience. But I think based on the floor here, Paul seems to be speaking of our new life, which fulfills the law of God. This is our own obedience as those who have partook of the grace of God. And he's going to talk about that, right? He's going to talk, we are those who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's how I think we fulfill the law. But I want to press that a little bit further. Why is it in the passive? And I think it's sort of like that passive in Romans 12, right? Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's an imperative. It's a command but it's in the passive. And I think that's because Paul there is emphasizing that though we are 100% involved, absolutely, it is the Spirit's work. Our efforts are necessary in our sanctification, but they are not ultimate. If you see yourself making any progress in your sanctification, you don't pat yourself on the back. You You give thanks and praise to God, who's doing that work through the Spirit, and you keep pressing on with maximum effort, right? That's why things of messed up. what do I do now? I press on. I'm 100% involved. But I understand, even as he says, we fulfill this law of God in us, very intimate, and yet we know that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. St. Augustine famously said, The law of God was given so that grace might be sought, and the grace of God was given so that the law of God might be fulfilled. And Paul will later say in Romans 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law. And he wrote Galatians about the same time as Romans, and he says in Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love really stands at the pinnacle of what it means to fulfill the law of God. And Jesus told us the greatest commandment is love, love for God, and the second greatest is love for neighbor. Our renewed nature has new capacities to truly fulfill the law. And it's amazing because the Judaizers who boast of the law they don't fulfill it. They cannot because they're trying to establish their own righteousness. But Christians, those who come brokenhearted, they truly fulfill the law because of the Spirit's work in their lives causing them. Love. So I think Paul's argument is the law condemns, but you have been freed from the law, you are no longer the one who disobeys the law. In fact, now you fulfill the law, so you have no reason to fear judgment. See, when you look at your life, do you see yourself fulfilling the law? Do you see your life increasingly characterized by love for God and love for neighbor and love for other believers? If that is true, then you are fulfilling the very purpose for which Christ died We are saved to fulfill the law. We aren't saved to ignore the law. And that is witnessed in our lifestyles. Be assured, believer, of your future salvation because you have a new life now. Finish the rest of verse 4. We are those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And walking here speaks about our manner of life. A consistent, habitual pattern of our lives, our daily conduct. And Paul says in Romans 8, 9, we are no longer in the flesh. We don't set our minds on the things of the flesh, verse 5. We don't live according to the flesh, verse 12, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life's possessions. Those things may still bug us, but they are bygones for us. No, we mind the things of the spirit. Verse 4, led by the spirit of God. We bear the fruit of the spirit. Right, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is us. And love, even in that list, is listed first. And First Corinthians thirteen, thirteen tells us. But now, faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of this is is love. The gospel produces change. The grace of God we've seen in verses 1, 2, and 3 has an effectual work. Imagine your friend telling you that he was struck by a train going 300 miles per hour, and he was here to relate to you that experience. You will say to him, you're going nuts. But sometimes when you and I share the gospel with others, and we talk about the riches of the gospel, and they look at us and they say, well, but your life devalues the very thing that you communicate to me. You must be a liar. You cannot be truly saved and exhibit no fruit in your life. Jesus said there will be fruit, right? It will vary, maybe 30-fold, 60-fold. To... We see right here in our text, the triune God at work. The Father is mentioned in verse 3. The Son is mentioned in verses 1, 2, and 3. And the Spirit is mentioned in verse 2. All false religions involve human achievement. But true religion, according to Scripture, is all of God, a triune God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So how do you grow on your assurance? You cannot be condemned because you're in Christ, verse 1. You dwell on that. You are released from sin which is what attracts condemnation, verse 2. You dwell on that. Your sins weren't merely erased that would violate God's justice, but they were actually condemned in Christ, verse 3. You dwell on that. And verse 4, your new life fulfills the law of God. No condemnation for us, verse 1, because Christ was condemned in our place, verse 3. We've been released from the law, verse 2, not so that we might live in sin, but so that we might be slaves to righteousness and fulfill the law, verse 4. Earlier I mentioned Barabbas. We don't know what happened to Barabbas. We don't know if he ever wondered who the man was. He was condemned on his behalf or behalf. <laughs> what, we, what we do know is what Barabbas had from an ethereal ruler that day, right? Barabbas had from Pilate, no condemnation, Barabbas. But I want to remind you of another criminal. He was next to Jesus, on the mouth of Golgotha, and he kept hailing insults at him. But at some point, before the Lord of Glory, Jesus Christ breathed his last, this thief understood that he was suffering for his own sins, but Jesus, the man in the middle, had no sin and did not deserve the cross. And that night that thief heard from the day in paradise. And all believers throughout the history of the church have heard from heaven the moment they trusted in Jesus. No condemnation now, no condemnation ever. And you and I, brothers and sisters, we have no reason to doubt heaven's word to us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Not even angels are worthy of proclaiming such glorious, glorious mysteries of the gospel. I think of Paul who said, who is sufficient for these things is found in God. Our sufficiency is in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. No amount of messages or sermons can Climate the depth of what you've done for us. Help everyone of us here, believers, to love you with all that they are. And for unbelievers, Lord, open the eyes of their hearts that they might see, we pray in your son's name.